I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The FT. Welcome back to the FT's Banking Weekly, your Monday take on the top issues in the world of banking in downloadable form with me, Patrick Jenkins. Today, Barclays reports better than expected profit growth and says it won't need to raise fresh capital. What do its results herald for the rest of the UK's banks? We will need to see significant improvement in Barclays Capital if the bank as a whole has any hope of meeting the targets it has laid out for itself. And how are the banks and markets viewing the Eurozone deal now there has been time to digest the details? There wasn't a huge amount of detail and and was this enough to really get the sector back on its feet and people are thinking probably not. And finally, what's the significance of the latest Financial Stability Board report indicating that shadow banking is back to pre-crisis levels? What shadow banking is, is everything that's not a bank doing the lending that banks normally do. Joining me today are retail banking correspondent Charlene Goff and chief regulatory correspondent Brooke Masters. So Charlene, Barclays results, they are the first of the UK banks to report their third quarter numbers and they've come in slightly better than expected, an 18% rise in adjusted pre-tax profits for the, for the first nine months of the year. But revenue growth has stalled, I suppose, uh, not unexpectedly. And then on the on the uh, investment banking side, Barclays Capital, like nearly everybody else, seeing problems in their fixed income currency commodities business uh, falling by 20%. What's the highlight for you? Well, like you say, I mean, the, the numbers weren't too bad. And um, I think the shares were up in early trading. You know, there was some bounce. I think they've calmed down a bit now as the rest of the sectors come back into line. But you know, it was it was pretty good progress. I mean, you mentioned the word adjusted pre-tax profit. There were a, a whole raft of one-off items in there, um, which uh, somewhat skewed the numbers. You know, they took a huge write-down um, on the value of their state in BlackRock. They were obviously hit by the PPI claims. But stripping those out, um, like you say, an 18% increase in, in pre-tax profit... And now, me, is that stripping because they had a, another exceptional, which was a benefit, wasn't it? Which was their this bizarre accounting benefit from uh, their own debt, the value of their own debt being that much lower than it was before and therefore triggering, I think it's a three billion gain. Yeah, exactly. That that was stripping that out. Right. Well. And I think the highlight really was, for me anyway, was that their troubled European business has shown some signs of improvement in the last three months. And now that was know, that was one of the big kind of blocks of, of business that Bob Diamond, the new chief executive who, who began at the beginning of the year, identified as a key, a key thing that he had to turn around. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Spain uh, largely was in huge trouble when, when he joined and he's obviously moved very quickly to try and reverse that. They took a very high restructuring charge, over 100 million in the, in the first half of the year. And that seems to be putting them back on track. They were in profit uh, in the European retail 
business uh, in the in the in the past three months for the first time since the very beginning of last year. So the reversing losses there. I mean, they still have a huge way to go, but that's a little benefit coming through. I mean, the I think the 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 area they still have most to do um, is probably Barclays Capital, but that's kind of in line with the rest of the sector. And Bob Diamond um, today said, you know, while the conditions were expected to remain very tough there for definitely the remainder of this year and into next year. You know, he didn't think um, it was a, a, a more fundamental problem with investment banking. He thought it was cyclical, obviously really tough markets there. But, you know, we will need to see significant improvement in Barclays Capital if the bank as a whole has any hope of meeting the targets it has laid out for itself by uh, 2013, which right now are looking pretty ambitious. They are, but like like you say that Bob Diamond was pretty adamant that he was going to stick by those targets. Yeah, he was. And analysts really do not believe him at this stage. You know, they say this is a massive mountain to climb. I mean, it might be just that, um, you know, at this stage with things so uncertain with, you know, Europe looking so dire still, you know, there's really no point of him for him to back down on those on those numbers now you know maybe in a year's time he might have to um at this stage because he saying, needs if he is going to back down back away from them he needs to have new numbers that exactly. are exactly and it's very difficult yeah. to kind of get a sense of that at this stage with so much uncertainty so he's sticking with it um you know in his typical you know sort of hardline approach that he has and and his confidence and optimism that people always associate with him. Yeah. An- analysts are just saying, you know, they're really not factoring in a 13% return on equity by 2013. They just can't see how that's going to be possible. So, you know, we'll look out for more detail on that in the months to come and, and see when he might have to um, admit defeat, but not <laughs> yet. <laughs> now, one other thing that uh, Mr. Diamond confirmed today was that the bank... I suppose, in line with the expectations that have uh, emerged over the last few weeks, would not have to raise capital uh, as part of any uh, broader European capital raising across the banking sector. Um, this is uh, this, this is probably in line with all UK banks, I think it's fair to say. Um, but um, that's not true across the Eurozone. In our kind of second topic for today, looking at the Eurozone deal that was done last week between the European governments and the ECB uh, and the IMF to partly bail out countries, but also um, bailing out or at least uh, orchestrating a recapitalization of the banking sector. There was a a lot of detail that emerged there. Charlene, again, you you were monitoring that closely last week. Do you think the market reaction has been what you might have expected in terms of um, you know, there was a there was quite a substantial bounce on mm. the day, um, but maybe enthusiasm has faded. Since well, then. I think it has, and I and I think that was almost inevitable. I mean, on the day we were quite surprised about the extent of of the of the bounce back in bank shares. You know, they were up double digits across the UK and Europe. Yeah. Um, when there was little surprise in in the rescue package, really, I think the the sense was that it was just that the European leaders had finally come together and got out something that resembled a kind of rescue yeah, package. It was a relief rally. Really, it was a relief was, rally, and yeah. that's gone now to an extent. Um, and and I think people are just you know realizing that. You know, there wasn't a huge amount of detail. And and was this enough to really get the sector back on its feet? And people are thinking probably not. I mean, it doesn't seem sufficient. I mean, there's particularly, you know, banks in Greece um, are facing the prospect of nationalisation. I mean, they were, you know, they're 
capital holes will be filled by the state, by the state fund. But, you know, analysts, a lot of people were saying to me last week that, you know, they're worried already that this 30 billion is not going to be anywhere near enough to to fill those holes in Greece. Um, Across Europe, uh, we had kind of a mixed reaction from the banks last week. I mean, the French, particularly in the Spanish, were... um, saying that they wouldn't be looking to raise fresh capital. They think that they can fill their holes by retaining profits, you know, cutting dividends, you know, selling assets. Although, again, you know, there were lots of questions over how easy it's going to be for them to deleverage and sell these assets um, without sort of triggering more losses that would create further problems. So, you know, that's all well and good for them to come and say that, but um, it remains to be seen how successful they'll be on those. And But like you say, the UK banks relative winners don't need to raise fresh capital. Yes. Barclays confirmed that today. We're looking for similar confirmations Confirmation from the, others, uh, the yeah. rest of the banks as they report their results over the next uh, few days. Brooke, what about across the other Eurozone banks? How does the, 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 the number that was identified for the whole sector, which I think was £106 billion, uh, from memory, how does that break down? And you know, how much of a, a real number is it? Are, are we going to see... Charlene was talking about, you know, uh, shrinking to uh, make the capital to, to to meet the capital ratio targets, um, which is obviously one way of doing it. I think actually a lot of it will not be shrinking. There will be some shrinking, and the regulators are certainly hoping that the shrinking will occur in the high capital, high risk areas of you know financial transactions and uh, interbank derivatives, which frankly they see as froth and would be happy just as happy to see gone altogether. And therefore hoping that it won't hit real lending and real SME finance and so on. And I think to that end, you can see that some of this capital is not new at all. The the Spanish, for example, got a, a huge benefit from the fact that they are they will be allowed to count their convertibles that are due to roll over and become equity between now and October 2012. It's something like $8 billion. Yeah, um, and that's particularly for the big banks. Um, they were that stuff was due to convert anyway in time for the 2013 Basel III guidelines, which do not allow you to count convertibles anyway. So, in they basically got an extra three months and and got to take advantage of something they knew was going to happen. So it's a bit like retained earnings; it doesn't actually affect lending. It doesn't affect anything. It just turns into equity if you give yeah. them enough time. And in a way, you kind of see why they allowed them to do that in that it was turning into equity. And if you assume the bank doesn't go bust between now and October of next year, it's not a bad idea. And it sort of reassures the market that it is in fact coming. Are we therefore going to see any rights issues? I mean, if there's going to be kind of convertibles, uh, there's going to be shrinkage. Uh, are there any going to be... Well, Anybody I th- raising new money? I think there will be, and I think the likeliest candidates are the Italians. One um, one banking analyst said to me last week that Unicredit, for example, was a walking rights issue, and I think <laughs> I think there's um, growing expectation that probably in the early months of next year, rather than rushing anything out before Christmas, would probably be a bit unlikely. But definitely, sort of um, early parts of 2012, we could see Unicredit go. We could see. Um, a couple of the other Italian banks. The we had Intesa, or, or you know, go already, and already, lo- yeah. looks and is in a much stronger position. Also, Deutsche Bank. Some people are saying you know might have to. They were very quiet last week. They didn't really say much or give much away on how they um, intended to fill their capital hole. But people are saying that you know they could be another contender, and they'd probably be in quite a good position to raise fresh, fresh capital at this stage from investors. I suppose the key question is. Um, does this uh, capital strengthening process do enough to restore 
the confidence of the bond markets because that's what European banks have been unable to do really is to fund themselves with a few exceptions in the bond markets and therefore create the headroom to be able to finance the corporate sector um, across the continent. So although you were saying, Brooke, that, you know, that there shouldn't be any direct uh, impact in terms of if banks are contracting, on the other hand, if they can't finance their ongoing operations so effectively by raising money in the, in the markets, then there is a real risk, isn't there, of a credit crunch? I think there is, particularly um, with the U.S. money market funds, which have been for the European banks their source of short-term funding. And because of regulatory and investor expectation changes in the U.S., have really pulled back from giving short-term money. Assuming that doesn't reverse, and there's no sign that it will, because the U.S. regulators are very clear they don't want the money market funds giving short-term loans to European banks right now. I think there is a risk that we, the the short-term funding markets will remain closed, and only the, you know obviously longer, slightly longer-term bonds will do better. But if they can't be replaced, if you don't have money, you can't lend it. Exactly. Moving on to our third topic, shadow banking. Uh, again, Brooke, is something, this is something that you were watching very closely. Uh, the Financial Stability Board uh, having come out with a new report, which is pointing maybe a slightly worried finger at this area uh, uh, of the kind of non-banking, which is comprises everything from those money market funds you were talking about to hedge funds to other uh, non-bank operations. They are saying that this sector is now as big or bigger than it was uh, before the first flush of the financial crisis back in 2007, 2008. Uh, how, how worried are they about it? Well, it's a funny thing because they're very worried because they don't really quite know how big it is or exactly what it is doing. So it makes the regulators very nervous that it could be doing very dangerous things. On the other hand, here we are talking about banks being unable to lend. What shadow banking is, is everything that's not a bank doing the lending that banks normally do. So it is the money market funds giving short-term loans to banks. It is private equity giving direct loans to mid-sized companies that aren't big enough to do bonds and aren't small enough to go to their neighborhood banker and get a loan. So in a way, it's not at all surprising that the shadow banking sector has stepped up because with banks not able to lend, there's a lot of profit to be made from this. But that with potential profit comes potential risk. Absolutely. Uh, because it is very, very, if you don't know exactly who's lending what to whom, it's hard to spot where the asset price inflation is. It's hard to spot who's over levered. Um, so what's the FSB proposing to do about this? The FSB is now, instead of, you know, sort of saying, oh, shadow banking, that's a problem, is actually going to do annual surveys. They have now, they're out there trying to figure out exactly who's lending what to whom and looking for is there a lot of shadow banking lending going to particular sectors, particular countries in an effort to try and, and at least get a handle on where the money's going so they can then be more prepared? They're also trying to focus, rather than saying shadow banking, oh, we're scared, focusing on particular parts of shadow banking that they think are particularly risky. For example, a hedge fund that is levered up, which means it's borrowing, and then in turn lending. So it's, it's, a, it's a spiraling of lending and, and it can all go bad very, very quickly. So do you get a sense then that they, I mean, just to remind our listeners, the FSB is the global body that kind of uh, monitors regulation and they are therefore the right body to be looking at the global risks associated with this. Do you get a sense that they are really getting on top of this and therefore, you know, risk is uh, uh, in hand, if you like? I think it's very hard to say that anything in the financial system is in hand if you look at what's happening in the Eurozone. I think the FSB is the right place. 
I think they're talking to each other and sharing data in a way they never have before. They've got more information than they ever have. The question is, once they you know take a look at this data, will they have the guts to actually say, okay, we need to do something about this? We're, they're going to be getting a new chairman probably at the at the G20 meeting. We've had Mario Draghi, who's now going to have the ECB, and he was very good at forging consensus and getting people to agree to do stuff. And the new head, we're not absolutely clear on, but this... The leading contender is Mark Carney, who is from the Bank of Canada, yeah. who has the advantage of having worked. I mean, his bank, his central bank succeeded in keeping its own banks out of trouble and therefore has a lot of credibility. He's also ex-Goldman, so he's a bit of a poacher turn game catcher. Uh, and he also picked a very public fight with Jamie Dimon, which suggests he won't be a patsy to the industry. So, I mean, if you're going to have somebody do it, it seems like it could be a good group to do it. Let's keep our fingers crossed on that. That wraps it up for today. Uh, remember, you can keep up to date with all these stories on www.ft.com banking. But now all that remains for me to do is to thank today's guests, Charlene and Brooke, and thank you for listening. Goodbye. Banking Weekly was produced by Emily Cadman. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.